Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 14. If you're following along in your bulletin, you can find it there on page 9. I typed out for you there. Also, uh, there are pew Bibles available, and it's on page 874 in the pew Bible. We're continuing on in this passage that we began last week, looking at Jesus' time uh, of having a meal in a, the home of a ruler of one of the Pharisees. And um, we're going to continue this kind of second part of what was taking place at this meal. There's a lot that happens, and Jesus says some very striking things, which we began last week. Uh, you may notice that there's a, a page in your bulletin, if you'd like to take notes, that's there on page 10. The outline there is blank, and so I just wanted to let you know what we'll be doing this morning. We're going to walk through the passage together as it's kind of an extended narrative. It, it has a, a parable in it that we'll just go through verse by verse. And then after we've considered the passage, we'll think about two applications of what Jesus has for us to learn as we think about these truths that get unpacked in the verses we'll look at together. So let's pray and ask that our Lord would help us as we consider his word this morning. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would help us to hear the words of Jesus, our Lord, today. We pray that the Spirit who inspired these very words to be kept and preserved in the Scriptures for us would also illumine our hearts, that he would help us to understand the beauty of the gospel that's held forth to us in Jesus' words. We ask for the Spirit's help this morning to remove distractions from our hearts and to give us hearts of faith to hear these things. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, when you have a major event, deciding who to invite is a pretty important decision, isn't it? You may think of a wedding reception or maybe a graduation party. And I think for all of us, there are naturally limitations on space and the more people you have, the more costs increase. And so most of us can't just invite anyone that we want anytime we want to have a get-together of some sort. So we have to prioritize and we have to make choices. Well, if we can understand that on, on the level of society that we engage in, the point of the scriptures as we think about the context of what's going on there is it was all the more crucial in Jesus' day when you were having a meal that you would strategize who was going to attend that event. And you think about it, some is just logistics. It couldn't be a, oh, we'll just have that catered, so just show up and, and I'm sure they can adjust, or grab your food on the way over. No, all of these things had to be grown and gathered and prepared uh, for an extended period of time as you then engaged in a meal of hospitality during the evening time. And so who you invited, uh, especially because of the, the way status worked in Jesus' day, who you invited told about how important you were and how important you thought they were. Um, Plutarch, who was writing about customs during basically the time that Jesus lived, he spoke of how a wise person doesn't even consider going to an event or not until they've seen the entire guest list because it would be incredibly unwise to be seated around people who might be of lower status than you or might not help your social status in the community altogether. And so this context of all this pressure of who comes to the meal 
is what makes this meal at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees so important. Because what it's showing us is how the religious leaders of Jesus' day viewed who was spending time, who was worth spending time with. And as Jesus attended this meal and looked at what was taking place, he noticed that this is actually nothing like how God's kingdom works. And he addresses the attendees for how they're jockeying for positions of status, even as they chose their seats at this meal. And we looked at that last week, and it's, it's almost hard for us to even fathom how awkward this must have been. <laughs> Jesus, this traveling rabbi who's really kind of being vetted and watched carefully by all the religious people who are worth anything in the society, he comes in and first thing he does is heals someone. The second thing he does is critiques everyone there for basically their worldliness of how they're choosing a seat. And so this traveling rabbi um, does something really surprising. But what I love even more is Jesus doesn't stop there. Our passage this morning goes on to show that Jesus then corrects the host. And that's what we come to as we come to Luke chapter 14, as we come to verse 12. It says this, He said to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. So notice right away, Jesus spoke to the man who had invited him. Interesting that he's not called there uh, the ruler of the Pharisees. He's just a man who's a host as Jesus addresses him. And Jesus does something that you would never do in that society unless you were going to thank or praise the host. You wouldn't address them um, other than with words of gratitude, especially when the host himself is supposed to be one of the most godly men around. And so what Jesus does is just startling. And he goes on to say, well, and what he's saying there is who you are not to invite to your meals. He says that the people on this ruler's guest list are all wrong. He has the invitations all wrong. Why shouldn't you be inviting these religious people that are hobnobbing here at the meal? Because they can repay you. They can repay you. Whether it's by reciprocating with then inviting you over to another meal of status, or whether it's just by blessing you with their presence, which maintains your status or might even elevate it, they are people, your friends, your relatives, your rich neighbors, they are people who can repay you. Now, it's important to understand here that in Jesus' correction, he's not saying that it is never okay to invite your friends or your relatives for a meal. Think of how that would work out logistically, even as parents. Uh, Sorry, kids, can't invite you to this one. Um, Maybe you can go next door and we're having the neighbors over. Uh, It gets a little bit tricky. We know that biblically we're called to care for our friends and our relatives, and that involves sharing meals together. The language here is of customarily doing this. It's, It's critiquing that this is all that they did was head over people who could repay them. And so Jesus goes on with his correction and he tells them who to invite instead. And that's seen in verses 13 and 14. He says, but, but when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, 
the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. And so Jesus says, there's a different type of person to be inviting. The poor, the crippled, lame, and blind. They are the people of Jesus' day who had no status. There was no way that they could repay. And again, we may hear that and we may think, yeah, that would be a nice thing to do. Just like with Jesus' instruction about choosing the lowest seat, yeah, do that sometime at a party. That's probably pretty charitable. Here, every once in a while, why don't you just invite the unworthy people of society over? But what we fail to realize is that if you were to do this at all, you would lose all of your social capital you would become one who's just as lowly as all the rest and you wouldn't be invited to other meals. And so what Jesus is doing here is just really difficult, I think, for us to understand. He's calling everyone at this dinner, the attendees and even the hosts, to give up on gaining points in society and to give up altogether on trying to gain points, especially among their religious society. He's calling them to take the lowest seat because humbling yourself before God leads to divine exaltation. He's calling them to invite the outcasts because of your trust in divine repayment and blessing. It's hard for us to imagine what it would have cost these people to actually do what Jesus said. And it would not only affect them and their standing in society, but it would affect their families and their friends as well. It would upend the social and religious conventions of the day. And so, (laughs) imagine you're here at this meal. This is the part where it goes silent. (laughs) And I know they didn't have forks back then, but this is where you would think of the fork. You just hear them kind of clinking, and then they eventually stop. And all of a sudden, oh, I guess there are a lot of crickets this evening. I hadn't noticed them before. Until someone interjects. Notice verse 15, the attendees' interjection. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to them, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. I absolutely love this man. Um, This is the kind of person you want at your dinner parties. Um, He's listening, he's tracking, and he realizes, "Uh uh-oh, uh-oh, this is getting really awkward. We need to get this party back on track. Okay, how, how can I do this? Well, let's see. Everyone here likes theology. Yep, yep, that looks right. Let me say something theological that we could all agree with and kind of move on from this awkwardness. Blessed is everyone who will eat of bread in the kingdom of God. What does he mean when he blurts this out? Well, eating bread in the kingdom of God is speaking of that expectation of that heavenly banquet that we heard about in Isaiah 25. It's it's shorthand for this biblical conception of the finality of the kingdom of God being a time of unending blessing that's portrayed as a banquet where God dines with his people and it's a feast for kings forever. And so he, he says, blessed is everyone who will do this. This is what we're all shooting for, right? For, for that banquet. 
why don't we talk about that and stop talking about this banquet? Because this is not going very well. But when he raises this point, I think he essentially unknowingly actually brings up the heart of the issue. Because there is a misconception about the nature of the heavenly banquet that's shaping why the earthly meal is looking the way that it does. And so we need to pause for just a minute. And I know this is like diving into some other sources and things, but just hang with me for a minute because it's really important to understand what was in the air, uh, what they were reading in their devotions as they were thinking about this idea of the messianic banquet. One of the key passages about this whole idea, eating bread in the kingdom of God, is what we heard in our scripture reading, Isaiah 25. And do you remember, or you can even flip back in your bulletin to see it printed there, but do you remember what it says that banquet is all about? Who that banquet is for? It says that it's a feast, and it's a feast for all peoples and all nations. And if you're reading the context of Isaiah, what's happening is people from the four points of the compass are coming together on the mountain of God and having a feast. And so it's this amazing end times inclusive event. But there are three documents that are circulating around the time of Jesus from written from a few hundred years before to, you know, it's hard to nail down the exact dates. But all you need to know is that these things are current and being read by God's people. And so the first document that's important to consider are, is uh, what's found in the Targums. And so the Targums were Aramaic translations of the Old Testament. So you'd have the Old Testament in a language that maybe you're more familiar with. But what's important to understand is that the Targums are paraphrased translations. And so they're capturing the ideas, something like the New Living Version or the message. But I think they go much further. And so listen to what's said of Isaiah 25, verse 6, if you're reading along in your Targum. It says, Yahweh of hosts will make for all the peoples in this mountain a meal. It's good so far, right? We're on the same page. Notice where it goes. And though they suppose it is an honor, it will be a shame for them. And great plagues, plagues from which they will be unable to escape, plagues whereby they will come to their end. It's a little different than what we find uh, in the Old Testament, right? What a different conception, Hey, come to this feast. Surprise, plagues, judgment. (laughs) Whoa. So that's an amazing change. Then another writing is found in the book of Enoch. It's written outside the Old Testament a few hundred years before Jesus, and it claims the name of Enoch, so we call it pseudepigrapha. It's it's picking up on um, that author's name, even though we don't believe Enoch wrote it. It says, The Son of Man will destroy the unrighteous or the Gentiles, and after that the righteous and the elect will eat with the Son of Man forever. So there's this eating with the Son of Man concept that's there. But notice, All the Gentiles have been wiped out before this eating takes place. And then the last thing that's important to note is that during um, Jesus' life and ministry, there was a strict religious community at Qumran out in the desert, and they were um, preparing the way for the Messiah. They were very religious and very stringent, and they have a section in their writings called the Messianic Rule. And it says that in the last days, Messiah will gather the community and eat bread and wine. Again, good. We see that in the scriptures. But notice who they say will be there. 
the wise, the intelligent, and perfect men will gather with him. And notice how they'll be seating. Sitting before him, each in order of their dignity. Notice that hierarchy that comes back in. And then who's not allowed to be there when Messiah shows up? No one who is smitten in the flesh, paralyzed in his feet or hands, lame or blind or deaf or dumb, or smitten in his flesh with a visible blemish. And so do you notice the progression? In Scripture, we have it's a banquet for all peoples somehow, and it's an amazing thing. And then it goes to no Gentiles. And then it goes to, in fact, only the righteous Israelites. And then it goes to, in fact, actually, only the most perfect righteous men can be there at that banquet. And so, why is this all important? When this man says, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God, to them, to the people who were there, they would look around and say, you know what? I think we're getting pretty close. I mean, this seems to be reflecting what that meal is going to be like. And Kenneth Bailey says that a favorable response, if Jesus wanted to go along with status quo and just kind of melt back into the scene or get a favorable verdict, he could have said something like this. You're right. Oh Lord, may we be among the righteous and be counted without blemish, worthy to sit with the men of renown on that great day. And he could sit down and then they could just eat. But that's not how Jesus responded, is it? Instead, Jesus tells a parable. And in a sense, what he's doing here is he's saying, you know, I'm glad that you brought that up, the messianic banquet. You see, the reason that your guest list and your seating chart are so messed up is because you have a distorted view of what that banquet is going to be like. And so let me tell you a story And it's a story that invites you to see a different way of how God's kingdom really works. And so he goes on to tell a parable, and we find it in verse 16. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. Let's just pause there for a moment, and we're just going to kind of keep working through it bit by bit. But to give a great banquet and to invite many, the host must be a very wealthy person to be able to do this, right? And at a meal like this, what's customary is that you would have two invitations, and this was driven very much based on pragmatics. The first invite is saying, hey, I'm throwing a banquet. You're invited. Please RSVP. (laughs) And so at that first invitation, you'd say, I'll be there. And then what's great is the host knows how many are coming, and then he determines what type of meat they'll be uh, needed to serve. If it's a certain size group of people, we use a goat. If it's more people, we use um, a fattened calf. If it's more people, we go from there. How many of them will we need to prepare? And then, based on those responses and those preparations, when the meat has been slaughtered and prepared and cooked, then the second invite goes out saying, come. All is ready. It's time to have this banquet. And that's what we find there in verse 17. Come, for everything is now ready. So when news of everything being ready comes, notice the insulting responses in verses 18 to 20. It says, but they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. 
And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. And so we get a litany of three excuses. And this would have been seen as incredibly insulting, a slap in the face or more to the master. And there's a lot that could be said, but I think just two things are really important for us to understand. First of all, the original hearers would have heard these excuses as very, very thinly veiled lies, if not outright lies altogether. We hear them and we think, oh, maybe, I guess that makes sense. I mean, it's a bummer they couldn't come, but I guess it makes sense. That's because we don't know the customs of the day, right? Each activity that's mentioned here is something that you would know you would know about way ahead of time. If you were to buy a field, you see the field before you ever even negotiate the price. And often buying a field took years. If you're buying a yoke of oxen, you had to go and watch how the yoke of oxen performed, and that's what would determine the pricing of if you were going to buy them or not. And so you see and you test before the price is even set. Whereas here, they're saying, oh, I already bought them and now I'm going to go do that. Well, even if that's true, that's not going to affect your attendance at an evening meal. The business day is over. You can come to a feast in the evening. If you need to go travel, you don't start your travels in the evening. That's the most dangerous time of the day. So all of these things are excuses that way. When we come to the one regarding a wife, there's a lot that could be said about that. It's a really derogatory way here of speaking, but, but we could boil it down even to this. Even if this was your honeymoon, you would have known when that initial invitation came that you shouldn't say, yes, you're going to come. <laughs> you would know that that's going to be happening ahead of time when you RSVP'd. So these are thinly veiled lies. And then secondly, they would have heard all of these things as relational insults. Their relational insults, each one of these people in their responses is saying that something else is far more important than their relationship with the master. And it is an intentional effort really to bring him disgrace and shame. And do you realize that these three excuses are really just representative of many more responses? Did you notice that there it says in verse 18, but they all alike began to make excuses. It seems like this was actually an organized effort on the part of all of the guests to reject and shame the host who had invited them. And so this begins to make sense of what we see in the master's response. Notice the master's response there in verse 21. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry And said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and blind and lame. The master here rightly becomes angry at how these people are treating him. They are doing something horrifically insulting and shaming. But instead of vengeance, he responds in a shocking act of grace, doesn't he? What he does is completely detrimental to any remaining status that he had in society. He might be able to pull off being shamed at one meal, but he would not be able to pull it off after what he does here. 
he sends his servant to the streets and the lanes of the city. This is where the outcasts, the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind live. Those very people that we heard are not to be on the guest list for the messianic banquet. And the reality is, in that society, they would have never been invited to a meal like this. And they don't even have the means to make up the excuses that the original invitees were making up. The poor weren't invited to banquets because they had no way to repay, either by status or by money. We think of the excuses, blind don't go to examine fields because they cannot see. The lame don't go to test oxen because they can't even work in a field. The crippled and maimed don't get married because they can't even provide for a spouse. Do you see how low of a position these people find themselves in? And did you notice the effort that's put forth in this invitation? It doesn't just say, go and invite them. The master says to bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Why do they need to be brought in? Well, they can't just be told about it and expected to show up. How are they going to get there? The idea is they have to be escorted, even carried to the table to be able to come to this banquet. And so the servant does this, but it doesn't stop there. Notice verse 22 and 23. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done. And there is still room. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. So do you see what happens? Even with all of these unlikely attendees being brought into the feast, there's still room at this banquet. And the master even says, there's still room in my house. The idea is, I want to pack this place out And so he tells the servant, now go outside the city where the highways and the hedges are. This is where you find the most unknown people and where you also find the absolute lowest of society. They're so poor and they're so unclean that although they may come into the city during the day, they're not allowed to dwell in the city. They're the beggars and the prostitutes, and the tanners, and and different ethnic groups that were looked down upon and despised, and so therefore had to take up residence outside the city itself. And do you notice what he says? He says, compel them to come in. Now, when we hear the word compel, the first thing that comes to my mind is physical force. Like, okay, I'm going, I'm coming to the banquet, seriously. Um, That's not what's happening here. And, And it's not even saying, be rude and pushy. I think it's very unfortunate how sometimes Christian approaches can be based on this verse of saying, we need to compel them, twist their arm, or just berate people. But, but think about what it was in this society. In their context, these people are never going to believe that an invitation this good has come to them. In fact, they are socially obligated to refuse an unexpected invitation like this. If someone with this kind of status invites you, someone with this low of status, you can't say, sure, I'll be there. 
you need to be persuaded that this is really for you. And in fact, there's some customs that are written down that seem to be at the time, again, of when these things were taking place. And one of them says that if a person of lower status like this is invited by a person of higher status, that person of lower status must talk about something else for 15 minutes before they can revisit the topic again to then ever accept. It's the whole, you pay, no, you pay, no, you pay. But in a way bigger structure of society. And so compel them to come is convince them that this, something this good is really true. But then also think of what their status would mean in light of this invitation. This is just one more possible trick. This is just one more way that the wealthy and those with status can exploit those of us who are of lower status. Because if they attend that banquet, they are indebted now to that host. And so they're going to think long and hard before they ever say yes to some sort of invitation like this. And so compel here means convince them that something this good and gracious is really for them with no strings attached. And then this section ends with a warning, verse 24. It's like the master kind of comes and and stands on the stage in the middle of this dinner party. He says, For I tell you, none of these men who were invited shall taste my banquet. The ones who were invited but were so consumed by their own affairs that they were willing to offend the master and saw no problem in shaming him, their seats are not going to be saved for later. There's there's no later invitation extended to them. They have made their choice and kept themselves from this banquet. Well, in our text, no more is actually said about this meal. It then goes on to another section. And I am so curious how the rest of that dinner went. (laughs) I'd imagine Jesus wasn't there a whole lot longer, but I'm not really sure. But he had given them plenty to think about if they had ears to hear. And so also for us, as we hear Jesus' words in this parable, there's plenty for us to consider. And I, I just want us to consider two things this morning. The first is that God relentlessly pursues outcasts and outsiders. The attendees at the banquet are those who can't even get there on their own. They have to be brought in. Spare no effort to bring them here. They're those who have to be compelled because they have never in their lives imagined that something so good could be extended to them in a way that would not do them harm. It's such radical free grace. And that's really good news, isn't it? That's really good news. Because regardless of where we fall on the social ladder of our day, whether we find ourselves rich or poor or in or out, regardless of how cleaned up we can all look when we gather together here on Sunday, or regardless of who we have over at our dinner parties, The truth is that because of our sin, we are the spiritual outcasts and outsiders who receive this invitation of grace. You see, the gospel says that our sin has put us outside of God's holy presence. And like the poor, we have nothing that we can bring to repay. 
We are spiritually blind. We can't even see and understand the truth apart from God's work. Even if we thought we could somehow do works to to earn a spot at the table, could we wash dishes afterwards or something? We find ourselves crippled and maimed by our sin, that even our good works are as filthy rags. If the invitation to the heavenly banquet were based on spiritual status, none of us would be invited, would we? But Jesus came as the servant to proclaim this gracious invitation. You realize he's the only one who deserved a seat at the table. And yet he offered himself willingly to pay for our sins so that through his life, death, and resurrection, he could make it possible to say, come, for all has been made ready through the work that I did on the cross. And now we as outcasts and outsiders can be brought into God's presence to taste forever the abundance of his good and free grace and love. Our God is a God who relentlessly pursues outcasts and outsiders. But like in the parable, not all respond to this invitation. There are those who are preoccupied by cares of this world, their fields, their possessions, their careers, their relationships. Some even presume upon their status, thinking that they can work things out in this life and there will be time to join later on. And they refuse the invitation when it comes. But the call of the gospel goes forth today. Come. You are welcome at God's table. Don't just hear the invitation of his servant, but turn to his servant, the Lord Jesus, in faith. Place all of your trust in his work alone, and you will have a seat at heaven's table. What amazing grace that is for outcasts and outsiders. But the second thing that this parable calls us to consider is that we also have an invitation for outsiders and for outcasts. I love how this parable ends. If, if you think about the story, the master send, he tells the servant to go out to these far places, but we don't hear how it ends up. The, there's still room in the master's house, and he's still calling others to come in. And we know that as the rest of the biblical story unfolds, that Jesus commissions his followers as his servants to bring that invitation to the ends of the earth, doesn't he? That's the place that followers of Jesus now find themselves holding forth this invitation as we go to be among outsiders and outcasts. The parable calls us to have the heart of our master as he sends forth this amazing invitation of grace. And so it raises a question for us, a question that for me cuts right to the heart. How involved are we as servants of the master with outsiders and with outcasts? reaching out maybe something that we assent to, proclamation of the gospel, something that we believe in, 
But do our actions show that we have our master's heart? A question we need to consider along these lines is who are the outsiders and the outcasts of our day? You know, when the Gospels refer to the poor as kind of shorthand for this low status of society, it's about more than just economics. It's really a whole host of factors that a person may experience that put someone outside the boundaries of who's acceptable in society and who's acceptable as receiving an invitation to be part of God's people. And so these outsiders and outcasts are religious outsiders. They're those of a different religion, agnostics, non-Christians, nuns, those who claim no faith in particular, or those possessing a different faith. It's cultural or status outsiders. It's the literal poor and the unemployed and underemployed and the homeless. But it's also people who look different from us, people who have a different first language, people who have different customs, people who view the political world in a way different from us and maybe didn't vote the same way in the last election. They see the world in a different way, and so they're cultural and social outsiders to us in many ways. And it's also the behavioral outsiders. It's those who struggle with addiction or their sexuality or mental illness or who use words that we don't say in church or who do thing, have done things that aren't the respectable things that we're allowed to do as Christians. And so this parable and Jesus' ministry as a whole reminds us that God's heart is to passionately pursue these people. And the question is, do we? Do outsiders and outcasts come through those doors? But even on a deeper level, do we bring outsiders and outcasts into our own hearts, that then one day maybe they would come through those doors. I want to give two caveats just to consider, just so it doesn't muddy things that we hear it in such a wrong way that we lose the force of Jesus' call. One is that this doesn't mean that being with believers is not important. The means of grace and gathering together as God's people is essential. Learning to live out the one another commands in the context of community is God's design for growth. And it's also God's design for witness. It's not an either or. The two go together. And so reaching out doesn't mean cutting off contact here. But secondly, all of this involves wisdom. Radical love doesn't mean reckless folly. And sometimes passages like this are used to kind of throw out a whole context of responsibility or safety. We know that the scriptures, what they call us to is loving wisely. And so with those things in mind, with that said, our God wants us to model his heart as we move toward others. What does that look like for you today? 
I could go on with five or 10 pages of applications and tease out all kinds of different ways. But the reality is each of us finds ourselves in a different place, knowing different people in a different context. And the question that God wants us to consider is, what does this look like for us as we follow him in Jesus' way? For many of us, this is a call to change our social calendars and our guests lists. I must confess that as a pastor, I can fill all of my time with church people. And that's a good thing in a lot of ways, but it's not obeying Jesus and it's shriveling up my heart towards outsiders. And so we have to say, whoa, wait a minute. Some of that time, some of that margin has to come back to be a neighbor and a friend, to have time to go and to see and to know and to love. For others of us, we are with outsiders and outcasts all the time. But we may have lost sight of God's heart for them. It can be a wearying thing. Maybe it seems like a waste of time, or maybe you're just worn out from all the pressure that that brings. But I believe the master's words here can encourage you. You may be in their life to compel them. Not in pushiness, or arm twisting, but by reassuring them again and again and again through word and deed that this invitation, this gracious invitation is really for them. And so the Lord can strengthen you in that work to continue to grow in that heart even in the midst of the difficulties we find as we engage in these situations. But regardless, all of us can pray that God would give us a heart like this, that we would grow in our love and our understanding for those who are different than us, and that love would show itself in wise and welcoming action toward them. We began by considering that who we invite to our meals, which is really a metaphor for who we invite into our lives, is really a weighty matter, isn't it? It says a lot about us, But this parable shows us that it also says a lot about how we view God, doesn't it? There's a tendency that we heard as we considered Isaiah 25. There's a tendency among God's people to drift from an accurate view of God's kingdom with open welcome going out to the nations. There's a tendency to drift for heaven's guest list to go smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller until it becomes that it's only for those who have their act together. But thankfully, our Lord Jesus has given us a way to keep us from drifting. And how has he done that? Every week he calls us together for a meal that's a dress rehearsal of sorts for this heavenly banquet. He reminds us week after week of who is invited to God's banquet. We gather around the Lord's table as outsiders and outcasts. It humbles us in our pride because we realize we have nothing to bring. It reassures us in our despair because it reminds us that our works were never a part of what got us the invitation in the first place. And it unites us in our differences as whatever our status in society, when we gather around his table, we are seated together in the same place as co-heirs together by faith in Jesus. 
And you know what else the supper also does that I have to confess I so often don't consider? It reminds us that there are many more that our God wants to have at his wedding feast and his heavenly banquet. And so it even reorients our hearts to say, this invitation is not just for us, but it's for others who are out there. And so the Lord's Supper reminds us who is invited to God's banquet, but then finally, it reminds us what we are waiting for. We're not just waiting for another dinner party. As we eat bread and as we drink the cup, do you realize that we, have, we taste the beginnings of that heavenly feast? Even now, we have sins forgiven, new life in Christ, the welcome of God himself. But we are also waiting, aren't we? It's just the start. It's just a taste, but there's so much more to come. And we are waiting in faith for that day when our God comes and swallows up death and its veil over all people forever. And when our approach, reproach is taken away and when we behold our God one day. May the Lord Jesus strengthen us by his word and, and through this meal to give us the strength not only to wait for him and to delight in his salvation, but to also invite others to this table as well. I'm going to invite the musicians uh, to come up at this time. And I'm going to pray as we close our time considering this passage, but also as we transition to preparing our hearts for this dress rehearsal of the Lord's table, for participation in a foretaste of that heavenly feast. And so let me pray, and then we will sing and we will partake together. Our Father in heaven, we are amazed again at your lavish grace of how you run after outcasts and outsiders. And we realize as we think about our own lives, how you have lifted us up and carried us to the table when we could do nothing to come on our own. And so we thank you for that grace. We pray that you would encourage our hearts afresh that we would delight in this invitation and that that would lead to opportunities for others to receive that invitation as well as we fix our eyes on that day when all will be made right and we feast with you forever. Even so, we ask that you'd come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.